1: it was sort of like a light bulb went on and I thought, you know what? I know it's a product I need. I know it's a product so many other women with darker skin need.
2: Of course, I had no background
1: in retail or fashion, but I you know, I, I had the idea and I really thought, you know what, this is it, this is what I'm gonna do.
2: Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. Welcome to Make or Break, where I speak to remarkable people who reached a moment where they just had to make up their mind with guests spanning from across the business world, we'll unpack those critical moments and explore how these CEOs and entrepreneurs managed uncertainty. Today, I'm speaking with Ade Hassan, the founder of Nubian Skin. In the fashion world, nude bras and skin tone hosiery are seen as a foundational element of a woman's wardrobe, at least in theory. But for many women of color, the inability to find products that match their complexion has been quite a challenge. Major brands haven't been offering a wide range of colours, and the default nude was almost always beige. Frustrated by the lack of variety to go with her ever-expanding wardrobe, she thought it was time for a different kind of nude. At
1: one point, I remember having pots of tea and coffee and literally dip-dyeing the tights until finally I was like, oh my goodness, we've got it, we've got it. And then sending those tea-stained tights to the hosiery mill and saying, this is the colour you need to replicate.
2: Ade Hassan's decision took her out of a successful career in finance and into the world of lingerie. And her goal was simple enough to redefine the concept of Nude. Ade Hassan, welcome. Thanks for having me. And we're going to start with your first big decision, which is to give up a great job in finance, you know, all going swimmingly, and then risk it all for a, for a business that you didn't know would work. So let's hear about the job first of all. What, what was your job?
1: I was working as a project manager in a private equity placement agent. So essentially, I was working in finance, helping private equity funds to raise money.
2: And you liked it?
1: I, you know, I did like it. I liked it a lot. When I came up with Nubian Skin, I had been working in management consulting, which was something I was not enjoying. And I knew I was going to need seed capital. And so I decided to go back into finance so that I could be making more money, so that I could save more money, um, so I could start Nubian Skin. So I, I switched careers to go back into finance, which I did enjoy. But yes, Nubian Skin was always in the back of my mind and was kind of the thing that was driving me.
2: Oh, this sounds much more strategic than I realize. (laughs) So you're in management consultancy, and you're sort of not greatly enjoying it. And then you think, I'll do this business, but I need to make some cash and get into a profitable job before I can do my business.
1: Exactly, because my background was in finance to begin with. And so I knew that I could make more money doing it. And so it just kind of made sense to go back into finance for a while.
2: So you're, you're doing management consultancy, and you think, you know what, I shouldn't be advising other companies, I should be another company.
1: Yes, I'd always wanted to start my own business. That had always been a a dream of mine ever since I was young. In the midst of really not enjoying what I was doing, you know, I started really thinking hard about, well, what is it that I do want to do? And after essentially a lifelong frustration of never being able to find skin tone undergarments that were in my nude, it was sort of like a light bulb went on. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to create that company. Nobody else is doing it. I know it's a product I need. I know it's a product so many other women with darker skin need so I'm gonna do this of course I had no background in retail or fashion but I you know I I had the idea and I really thought you know what this is it this is what I'm gonna do
2: just explain a, a bit more of that to us so you were how old when you had this light bulb moment
1: goodness oh this uh, now now I've got it now I've actually got to calculate actually you know what it was almost exactly 10 years ago so I was oh, 26. Really?
2: And, and so the lingerie that was available until that time was just not appropriate for you.
1: Yeah, so nude is a very, very popular color in lingerie. So if you go into any department store and you go into their lingerie floor, you will see a wash of nude in quotations, which is beige. So it would work very well for your skin, but it would not work very well for mine, because nude isn't a one colour fits all. Everybody has different um, shades. And so for women like me who have darker skin, so black women, Asian women, mixed race women, even some white women, the sort of traditional nude doesn't work. This was in the
2: UK. Was that true internationally?
1: That was true internationally. So I did university in the US. And so I'd spent a lot of time in the US. And again, I would sort of searched high and low on the internet, as you do. And yeah, no, definitely no major brands were doing it. And there were no independent brands that had a sort of dark enough color that would work for me. In the US, in the UK, there just weren't other companies that were doing this.
2: So this takes me back to you being in the management consultancy business when you thought you'd change. Because I mean, that is quite a daunting thing to do. I mean, you've got an idea, fine. <laughs> but to turn that into reality is is not easy, is it? I mean, th- th- there must have been a massive number of obstacles in your way.
1: No, it's not easy. And I still sometimes ask myself what I was thinking. <laughs> but I was naive about it. I honestly didn't know anything about the industry. And in that sense, that was actually a strength because I didn't know how difficult it was going to be. But I was incredibly excited and very, very passionate. And so I think that combination of being naive, but having a lot of passion worked out in my favor in that case.
2: Did you take advice from others saying, shall I set this business up?
1: So I didn't, mainly because I couldn't believe that nobody else was doing it. And I thought, wow, this is my like paperclip moment. I found like, you know, this thing which everybody should be doing, but nobody is. So I didn't really speak to people about it. So I came up with the idea in 2011, but I didn't actively start working on it until 2013 pretty quickly, I realized that I had no experience. I couldn't figure out how to get things manufactured or even sampled. And so I knew that I needed some sort of expert advice. And so I did some Googling and I found somebody who worked within the industry who was a consultant and so drew up a non-disclosure agreement and had her sign it and then said to her, I think I've got this amazing idea, but I have no idea how to even you know, like no manufacturers are coming back to me. I email manufacturers and it goes into a black hole. I really need help. You know, and she looked at my plan and she looked at the idea and she just went, this is actually really interesting. And I think having somebody who was within the industry, you know, who'd been in the industry for decades saying this is original and this is exciting really helped me go, okay, actually, yeah, I think I'm onto something here.
2: So at this point, you're a consultant hiring a consultant?
1: <laughs> so at this point, I'd left consulting, um, and I was in um, i was—I was in finance. But yes, I was hiring a consultant. <laughs>
2: so, so you must have asked her, why is no one else doing this? And did she have an answer to that?
1: You know what? She didn't. And I didn't actually ask her, why is nobody else doing this? Because I wasn't actually very interested in that answer. I was more interested in figuring out, I know this is a good idea how can I get a manufacturer? That was my key, key goal. And so, yeah, we didn't actually really discuss why nobody else is doing this. Now that I've been in the industry for seven plus years, I know why nobody else is doing it.
2: So so why do you think no one else is doing it?
1: It's expensive. So you've got, you know, big, big brands who day in, day out sell black, white, and nude, and it's selling super, super well, and nude sells amazingly. And more likely than not, the people that own those big brands or manage those really big companies, that nude works for them. And so if it's not broke, why would you fix it? If they don't have anybody in their circle or in the decision-making room saying, actually, there might be some other nudes we should think about, then they don't even, you know, it doesn't even cross their mind as a problem. One of the other things which I discovered as I, you know, wanted to start this was the fact that I was going to have to create these colors. So if you go to fabric mills, you know, for lingerie fabric, they've got all colors in the world. And in stock, maybe they'll have like black, they'll have white, they'll have beige. What they don't have are browns that work as skin tones. So every now and then they may do a a fashion color brown, but they don't have the sort of browns that are like skin so that meant that when i was going into production i had to actually create those skin tones because they just weren't, you know, fabric pantones that i thought fit black skin or brown skin or basically the 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 spectrum of skin tones that i was trying to cover
2: where are the places that make this fabric all over the world. So,
1: I mean, pretty much every country has a fabric mill. They have black, white, and nude, and nude is beige. So when I started trying to figure things out, I couldn't just say, oh, can you send me your brown nudes? Because they didn't have any. And so I actually had to create colours that worked as a nude because I was doing four different colours. And I had to create those four different colours. I had to develop them.
2: But that's so baffling. Why would a country with a a non-white population be producing lingerie for whites, Because
1: that's the industry standard.
2: Right. And so that, and again, that was the gap. Now, you said before that one of the reasons other brands weren't doing this is because it's quite expensive. So you're a finance person. Did you go through all the numbers to see, is this viable? Or did you just think, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go for it.
1: A little bit of both. Obviously, you can't just go for it without thinking, um, okay, I'm going to need like some form of startup capital. You know, once I started speaking to manufacturers and sort of understood you know the initial capital outlay. I'd already been saving up anyway. I kind of knew what I needed to have before. You know, I sort of said, "Okay, now it's time to set sail." I didn't sort of just throw caution to the wind. I, I spent a few years saving up, um, and then my parents and my siblings also invested. I sort of made sure that I had the capital that I needed before you start engaging other businesses because you can't sort of order things and 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 set things in motion without knowing that you can afford to pay for them.
2: And how much money did you actually
1: launch with? All in all, just to start the company, it was about £80,000, £80,000 to £100,000.
2: Now, you mentioned that no one else was making the right coloured materials. So you realised, I guess, you'd have to do it yourself. How did you do that?
1: So I kind, of, I kind of knew that I'd need to create the colours um, and that became very apparent once I actively started working on the company. I remember one of the first things I did was order a book from Pantone, a little booklet that sort of had these swatches. It had a whole bunch of skin tone Pantones. And so I would go from makeup counter to makeup counter that had enough of an offering, um, you know, in the darker end of the spectrum and start, you know, chatting to the makeup artist saying which are your most popular colours, you know, like, what would you say in trying to get and speaking to lots of different ones and getting samples and then trying to match those to the skin tone, Pantone swatches. And I remember sending that off to the factory and saying, these, I think, are going to be our colours. And they came back and they just were not right. They weren't a nice skin tone. So if I put them on my skin, I go, that, you know, that doesn't look like my skin, and so I realized then that then that was sort of a year-long process of refining the colors. So saying, actually, we need to make this deeper, it needs to be more brown, it needs to be more yellow, more red, the undertones need to change. And then just going back and forth and back and forth until I was happy with the colors for the lingerie. But lingerie fabric is very different from hosiery fabric. And so once we got the lingerie colors done, I remember sending those off to the hosiery mail and saying, please replicate these colors. And those came back and they just didn't look right. And so at one point, I remember having pots of tea and coffee, like different types of teas <laughs> on my cooker and, and literally dip dyeing the tights until I finally, you know, had the two colors in particular was so difficult um, until I, and I kept drying them and then trying them on myself and, and trying them on my a couple of friends until finally I was like, oh my goodness, we've got it. We've got it. And then sending those tea stained, tights to the hosiery mill and saying this is the color you need to replicate um so yeah it was it was a process um, i don't think i i know i don't think i ever thought that i would be um dying tights on my stove
2: well that and that it took so long i mean that must have thrown you out in your thinking again didn't that lead you to think i shouldn't be doing this if it's going to take me a year to find a color
1: You know, I remember because I was so used to finance where everything has to be done yesterday and clients expect you to turn around things in 24 hours. I remember when I initially said, okay, I'm pressing go on starting this business. I thought in three months I would launch. Again, this is where being naive comes in. I had no idea. I mean, in the end, it took me from when I actively registered the company to when we launched, it took a year and a half, which now in retrospect, that is a really good amount of time. I honestly thought that it was going to be sort of like, of course, if I want this done, I'll get it done really quickly. But no, it it, it takes time.
2: And no second thoughts?
1: Uh, no. You know, I was kind of like a dog with a bone. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get it out of my head. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh my goodness, I have this perfect thought for a campaign. or I've got this perfect, you know, idea for what I'm going to name this color. So I was, I was obsessed.
2: And how did you feel when the colors did arrive?
1: I actually, I have a picture which every now and then pops up in my phone. I remember it arrived to the office. And I think at that point, my friends in the office knew what I was doing. I opened up the box and it had the first photo shoot samples. And so this was the first time that I was seeing the finished product. And I I remember opening the box and then bursting into tears because I just... Yeah, I couldn't believe that something that had been living so long in my head and that I'd been working on at that point, it had been, you know, probably a year and three months, was actually in front of me in the flesh um, and it was going to be real.
2: If you're enjoying listening to our podcast and feel inspired by some of the leaders you're hearing make tough decisions in make-or-break situations, you may want to equip yourself with the skills and capabilities to make your own difficult decisions – If so, the Open University's micro-credential, Management of Uncertainty, Leadership, Decisions and Actions is designed for you. Visit openuniversity.co.uk forward
0: slash management to find out more. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
2: Ade was delighted by the results and wanted to share them with the world. She posted the pictures to Instagram and the brand took off. In the first month, Nubian skin gained followers at an astonishing rate, growing from nought to 20,000 in just a few short weeks. Her lingerie came in four tones, berry, cinnamon, caramel and café au lait, and women all over the UK and beyond were clamouring for this inclusive underwear.
1: Today we're going to be talking about underwear, undergarments, and lingerie,
2: but not just any undergarments and lingerie.
1: We are going to be talking about underwear and lingerie for us melanated girls out there.
2: Nubian Skin started out as an e-commerce business, but when an avalanche of customers came its way, department stores started to take notice. And within a couple of years, Ade Hassan's products were popping up in House of Fraser in the UK and Nordstrom in the US. And soon, Ade Hassan received a message from the Queen of Pop. Beyoncé's stylist wanted Nubian skin to go on tour.
1: I mean, that was still to this day, I kind of think, how did that happen? But yeah, about two, two years after we launched... You know, I got an email from one of her stylists and obviously the Formation album and the Formation tour was such a huge cultural event. Yeah, they they said we would love to for Nubian Skin to provide the lingerie for the tour. And I thought it was a scam. I just thought this was somebody that was just trying to get, you know, I don't know. If, I, I don't know what I thought, but I just thought this can't be real. And then after a couple of days, I remember sending an email to some friends who worked in that industry saying, have you ever heard of this guy? And they were like, please respond to him. He's legit. Like, what are you doing? And so, yeah, I just remember when the the pictures from the tour started coming in and I could sort of spot the lingerie. And I remember sending him an email saying, is this what I think it is? And he just responded like 100%. That was phenomenal.
2: And how much difference did that make to your sales, actually?
1: You know, I get asked that question a lot. And the reality is not very much, mainly because it's amazing for us to be able to say Beyonce wore our lingerie. But it wasn't like Beyonce wore our lingerie and then put it all over her social media saying, I'm wearing Nubian skin. If she had done that, I think, you know, I might be retired by now. <laughs> you know, I think that then you, you know, everything would have just gone crazy. But she didn't because I think people pay Beyonce. A lot of money, money that I have not made yet, to be able to endorse their products. So it was amazing for Kudos. It was amazing for me as the owner of a brand. But as far as direct sales from that event, it, you know, it wasn't sort of an endorsement opportunity.
2: How did Beyoncé doing that compare with getting an MBE, which I should say is 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 a you know very significant honor in the British sort of system?
1: To this day, I honestly do not know how that happened. And so whenever I've asked about it, I always say, if the person who nominated me is listening, thank you so much. Getting an MBE was completely unexpected. And I actually thought, cause I didn't actually receive the letter. My sister, um, it went to my parents' place and my sister was there and she said, oh, there's something from like Her Majesty, whatever. And I thought she said Her Majesty Revenue and Customs cause I hadn't done my tax return that year. And, I, and they'd been sending me letters being like, you need to do your tax return, it's overdue. And so I said, Oh, can you just open it and let me know the fine, please? And then she just sends me a series of texts saying, OMG, OMG, OMG. And I was like, oh my goodness, it can't be that much of a fine. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I owe that much. Um, and then she sent me a um, she sent me a, a photo of the letter, and it said, You've been nominated to receive an MBE for services to fashion. And that. That statement, services to fashion, I just remember bursting into tears because I, it had been a rough year. Like I was still, you know, the business itself was sort of in transition. That was like when we were moving into producing everything in Europe and it had just been, yeah, it just felt very difficult. And so that was, you know, when I think at the beginning of this, you asked about, you know, affirmation or wanting validation. I, I don't think you can get more validation than that in the UK
2: no, no. So it's, it's a significant honour, and and but it is worth saying that the letters MBE stand for Member of the Order of the British Empire. Does that bother you?
1: You know, I this is you're the second person who's asked me that question. It's a very interesting thing. I mean, the British Empire. It was a fact, right? It, it happened in history, and if I'm hundred percent honest, that didn't even cross my mind at the time. I think now there's been a lot more conversation about it. You know, and we all know that there were lots of horrible things that happened in the name of the British Empire. So does it bother me? Personally, I would say no. And I suppose I could say my my thoughts are still evolving on this. You know, maybe I'll feel differently in a year. But turning something positive from something which could be seen as very, very negative, to me, is a good thing. That's not to make light of the incredible atrocities that happened. But for me, as an individual being given an honor for essentially bringing diversity into the fashion space, that brings a positivity to it.
2: Let's talk about uh, another decision you took, which was later on, once you'd got better established. And I think you well, just get the context. You you were making your clothes where?
1: So the very first lingerie collection was made in China. And the hosiery has always been made in in Europe. That's always been made in either Italy or Portugal. So initially, we did all the lingerie in, in China. And
2: then you had second thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, and then I wanted to have a lot more control and visibility over the whole process. So the factory in China was actually amazing. So I'd gone out there and, you know, done an inspection, met the owners because it was very, very important to me to know where it was being produced and to, you know, know that it was a a good factory um, with great credentials. But producing in China just meant that it was one, (laughs) there was a much longer lead time, um, but also I didn't have control over the whole supply chain. And I wanted to have control over this supply chain for a lot of different reasons. Obviously quality is one, and two, just being more ethical and more sustainable. If I knew the supplies of the raw materials, I could, you know, for instance, I could go for organic cotton. I could make sure that they, you know, they had incredibly high sustainability credentials. That was a process, I remember that was 2017, that I decided to start looking at, okay, you know, what? I actually want to produce in Europe. I want to work with you know, maybe smaller, independent manufacturers. And so now our main lingerie manufacturer is this amazing family-owned, independent European manufacturer. I source from France and Italy and Turkey, um, and they all have really, really great credentials, which means that, you know, I know that, when the fabrics are dyed, they're, you know, being dyed sustainably or as sustainably as possible. The manufacturing is ethical. You know, I know that the, the people who are making my products are being paid a very, very fair wage because it's expensive for us to produce it. Um, and so it was just really important to me to be able to, to take control of all those different
2: aspects. Was that a commercial decision or an ethical decision?
1: To be honest, it was a bit of both. From an ethical perspective, obviously it's, you know, being able to ensure who's making your product and ensure that, you know, you can use the type of products you want, ensure the credentials of the companies that you're sourcing from. But then from an economic perspective, it also meant that we could turn things around quicker because we were producing in Europe. It meant we could do smaller production runs, you know, so we didn't have to. And again, this is a sustainability thing. If you have, if you're producing you know, thousands and thousands and thousands, there's always going to be more wastage. But if you can do smaller runs, um, you know, of hundreds, then you're already starting to control and you're not, you don't have so much wastage. And you can respond to what your customer needs as well. So it's,
2: it's a little bit of a marriage of, of both. Did you think this will make me more profitable? Or did you just think this will make me a better company ethically?
1: I think I definitely thought that it would be better from a cash flow perspective. Obviously, my margin would probably be much better if producing in in the Far East, because obviously it's just cheaper. But um, from a cash flow perspective, it is less of a capital outlay, because you can do smaller runs. So I definitely thought that it would be better from a cash flow perspective.
2: So how thorough were you about this decision? I mean you've you've said your first decision was, you know, slightly naive, didn't really know what you're getting into, but yeah, you know, it all worked out. This second time, you're you are older and wiser. Did you think about it more?
1: You know what I did and I it was also a very very big learning experience because initially when I started, it was very much you know what, I don't, I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't have any contacts within the industry. And then wanting to then move manufacturing to Europe was, you know, it was very systematic. I got in touch with embassies from different countries, because, you know, as you gain experience, you start to realize that actually, this is all commerce, this is all trade. Um, and so every embassy has, you know, their trade desk or you know, at the consulate. And so getting in touch with them, speaking to them about, you know, I want to produce and then they introduce you to people. And so it was an amazing education in realizing that actually, as you gain more knowledge, you can then put that into practice. And so I feel as a business person, so much more knowledgeable about the whole nuts and bolts of sourcing and reaching out to manufacturers and reaching out to um, suppliers, because I sort of decided that, okay, you know what, I've actually been doing this for quite a while and actually there are resources at my disposal and I can use them and I can educate myself. For me, it's been a huge blessing. It's been an incredible learning experience.
2: If you were talking to someone who is thinking about whether, you know, to pull the trigger on their business idea, to go for it, what would you say to them?
1: I would say probably the most important thing is understand the boring things. So, you know, when you think about business, it's very, very easy. And and I am, you know, hands up, very, very guilty of getting incredibly excited about the sexy parts, getting excited about the creative and the marketing. But actually, what makes a business is the really boring, mundane stuff, the financial fundamentals, the operations and logistics, just the really, (laughs) the things that make a business tick logistics and money. And so I would say it's very, very important. It's important to have passion, but passion will go nowhere unless you've got the fundamentals in place. And so it's very, very important to make sure that in the midst of all the excitement and the creativity, to make sure that you're taking care of the fundamentals.
2: Logistics and money is quite a good way of uh, summarizing it. So can you hire people to do that for you? Or do you need to do that yourself?
1: I think it depends on where you are. Nubian Skin is bootstrapped. And so at the beginning, I was doing pretty much everything. And so I will honestly say that it, it, it's been a learning that those things need to be taken care of. And so some people will be in, the, in a very fortunate position that they can start off with a bigger team and then they can hire people that can do it for them. And sometimes you'll have to do it yourself. And so I do think as a business owner, it's really important to at least have an understanding of what's going on, You know, even if you're not an expert in that specific area. But now... I have, you know, somebody who really does take charge of, you know, our operations. And that is the most amazing thing because up until the beginning of this year, I was doing it and it
2: was a lot. <laughs> what about other lessons you can pass on? So I know previously we spoke
1: about, you know, our decision to, to move manufacturing. And, you know, in business, one of the key things is relationship building. Um, and I know that personally with Nubian Skin have found that really working on developing relationships with suppliers and manufacturers has been incredibly important for us. You know, one of our main manufacturers is, you know, also a small independent company and we've grown together. They sort of took a risk on us and we took a risk on them um, knowing that, you know, we're both small, but being able to work with people who, who sort of understand where you're going and also believe in your journey has been really, really important for us because it's meant that We've grown together and we've developed that relationship over the years. It's really important to develop good relationships with the other businesses that you're working with.
2: And if you could just summarize for us one piece of advice, a single piece of advice for someone entering the business world, what would that advice be?
1: Um, I would advise them to really take the time and effort to understand the fundamentals. I think it's really, really important to know the boring things which people generally don't You know, like to spend that much time on it's much easier to to focus on, you know, like a photo shoot or design. But understanding your finances, understanding your logistics is key to business success.
2: Ade Hassan, thanks very much for telling us about a couple of uh, very good decisions. (laughs) Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Wolfgang for Audi. It was presented by me, Owen Bennett Jones, and it featured Ade Hassan. It was produced by John Joe Devlin with editing by Eli Block. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino, with support from The Open University.